Well, we're talking about a lot of sadness and sorrow over death, but on a con- completely opposite thing, I have some epitaphs on funeral headstones. Some people really had a sense of humor in this arena. Um, these are from different countries or different parts of the world. I like this one from New Mexico. Uh, Cemetery, it says, here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. <laughs> A lawyer's epitaph in England, Sir John Strange. Here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. <laughs> oh, one more. This is another one in England. On 22nd of June, Jonathan Fiddle went out of tune. So. <laughs> Anyways, some people could find humor in that, but that was not the case for Jeremiah and what was going on in Lamentations. I want to mention that I got some great help from Walter Kaiser's book on suffering, his commentary in Lamentations, as well as Charles Erdman and, and others, so I can't take credit for my mind. You know, I'm sharing with you from my learning. Some of you have had the experience of going back to a childhood home and finding everything different. The structure may be run down, the people are strangers, and it looks so different than maybe many memories that you recall. And sometimes instead of nostalgia, there is tears. But on a much grander scale of change and heartbreak, we see the sorrow of Jeremiah expressed over and over and over again as he weeps for all that is gone. He had warned the kings, he had warned the leaders of the people, he had warned Judah that God was going to judge them for their wicked sins if they did not repent. Been preaching for decades. But they had embraced false gods to the extent that they even sacrificed their own children in the fires to these false gods. I mean, think about it. When you look at Joshua coming in to conquer the land, they were to devote certain people to destruction because of this kind of behavior. They had spurned Jeremiah. They had mistreated him as he tried to warn them over and over again of impending judgment coming from God. And no one listened. False prophets said that he's a liar. And they spoke, it's all going to be well. This is going to be peace. We're all safe. They were self-deceived liars who mocked Jeremiah and his message from God. But now it's 588 to 586 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Jerusalem. And there was famine, there was despair, there was fear. When the invading army finally got to the city, the king's sons were killed in front of him. The king's eyes were gouged out. He was taken to Babylon. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. And the people were murdered, and those who lived were sent into exile. And a few remained under the cruel leadership of Babylon. So Jeremiah witnessed all this with his very own eyes. Being a part of all these events, he sat down and wrote a book that expressed his feelings over the death of Jerusalem, and he calls the book Lamentations. There are just five chapters in this book, and it was written shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem. And the book is made really of five poems or songs of mourning about the tragic death of Jerusalem. In Hebrew, the first four chapters begin each verse in an acrostic pattern using the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 1 and 2 and 4 have 22 verses that correspond with the 22 letters of the alphabet in Hebrew. While chapter 3 uses a letter for every three verses, all of this would help to make memorization easier. Jeremiah did not want them to forget what they had been through. 
So in alphabetical form, he goes over the story of suffering again and again and again from various angles. So the first lament of chapter 1, Jerusalem is completely desolate. Jeremiah begins to describe his sorrow as he sits in the ruins of Jerusalem. And he says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who once was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her and they have become her enemies. <clears throat> Jeremiah describes Jerusalem as a lonely widow with no one to bring comfort. There is absolute helplessness and despair as he speaks of those who went into exile that they have no rest. Each sad verse reminds us of a very important fact about life. There may be pleasure in sin for a season, even a lengthy season, but eventually it leads to sorrow and pain. As one author put it, it is a mute reminder that sin, in spite of all of its allurement and excitement, carries with it heavy weights of sorrow and grief, misery, barrenness, and pain. It's the other side of the eat, drink, and be merry coin. God had continually warned Judah where her sin would lead, but she refused to listen. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, God told them, particularly chapter 28, he told them what would happen word for word, event by event, uh, if they failed to obey. This sinful pattern of willful rebellion goes way back in their history. You know, you read about the Exodus and then their wanderings in the wilderness. And then once the spiritual leaders, Moses and Joshua, were gone, that pattern emerges of sinful, the book of Judges, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Jeremiah says, she dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. Deuteronomy 28.65 says, among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. How incredibly sad that there was no rest to be found. The Hebrew word is a word related to comfort. The rest of God is entered into by faith. And Jerusalem is personified here as a woman who has been forsaken by all, killed by enemies, left with no former glory. Now she stands without any comfort and without any resting place. She is hopeless, friendless, godless, despised, and without rest. This once proud city is now disgraced and shamed. Verse 9 says her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. That's an important phrase. Therefore she has fallen. Astonishingly, she has no comforter. All of this heartbreak is because of the multitude of her transgressions. And the one responsible for all of this pain, the Lord has caused her grief. Two things jump out at me in these first 11 verses of this sorrow. First of all, that the Lord is responsible for bringing the grief because of the sin of the people. And that the people totally failed to consider the future. They forsook, forsook the Lord and his word. And they substituted the temporal immediate, doing what they wanted to do, for the eternal. Sin is like that, isn't it? It is so deceptive. It clouds a person's thinking so that they become very short-sighted, really living without thinking about the long-term consequences of my behavior today. <clears throat> There's nothing new about sinful human nature. 
People exposed to truth from the word of God can be so easily self-deceived by failing to consider the future outcome of their sinful behavior. And I'm not just speaking about unbelievers here. The principle of reaping and sowing holds true for all of us. If we sow a home filled with covetousness, critical spirit, impatience, anger, unforgiveness, we will reap ugly consequences of that behavior in the lives of our children as they grow up impacted by such behavior and sin. Will our sins of worry and fear not impact our future health and well-being and destroy the joy in our family? We must consider the future impact of our sinful choices today because it really does matter. And because God is holy, he will deal with sin. In the life of a believer, he disciplines us to make us more godly and holy in our character. In the life of the nation of Israel here, it was a national disaster because it was a nation defying their God. They were warned for centuries. And the entire generation taken away to exile or murdered had been warned through the faithful preaching of Jeremiah for decades. <clears throat> we are all so grateful to speak about chapter 3 where we're reminded of the loving kindness of the Lord and his compassions are new every morning. But being a righteous God, he cannot and he will not ignore sin. Speaking of God's anger towards sin, one author put it this way. <clears throat> he said, this is a supreme necessity in the interest of the universe. Prisons are in the interest of the free. Hell is the safeguard of heaven. A state that cannot punish crime is doomed. And a God who tolerates evil is not good. <clears throat> Deny me my biblical uh, revelation of the anger of God and I am insecure in the universe. But reveal to me this throne established, occupied by one whose heart is full of tenderness and love, then I am assured that he will not tolerate that which blights, blasts, and damns, but will destroy it and all its instruments in the interest of that which is high and noble and pure, end of quote. <clears throat> well, we're not the nation of Israel, but the truths about God and his attributes and his character never change. If you are his own child, he is very serious about conforming you to the image of his son. So please, I encourage you to keep short accounts with God and deal with your sinful attitudes, your sinful words, your sinful actions immediately. Don't be self-deceived like the nation of Israel. Don't fail to consider the future. Now, the people of Jerusalem saw their temple destroyed and totally desecrated. There was a false sense of security that they had, that all was well because the temple was in their midst. But having a place to worship means nothing when there is no obedience to the God that you're supposed to be worshiping there. Disobedience brought destruction, and disobedience brought famine. And suddenly, all the material possessions that the wealthy people had in Jerusalem, all their silver and gold, meant nothing when there's no piece of bread to sustain your life. Jerusalem now gives a plea for mercy in verses 12 through 22. Is it nothing to all of you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So the city not only echoes the observations of Jeremiah, but now expresses their incredible pain. It's as if she's asking people who pass by if, 
if they see anyone who is hurting as much as they have hurt. Her pain was inflicted by the Lord on the day of his fierce anger. This incredible distress is described uh, like a fire in the bones, and it burns with intolerable anguish that just isn't quenched, like a yoke which presses with the burden of a guilty conscience. It is like a wine press that crushes the mighty men and the virgin daughters of Judah. In anguish, Jeremiah then cries out, For these things I weep. My eye runs down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate, because the enemy has prevailed. This explanation of God's judgment, seen by everybody who passed by Jerusalem, ends with this expression of despair. It is an incredibly sad picture of Jeremiah weeping like a widow. Jerusalem stretching out her hands for comfort, for aid, but there is no one at all to bring any comfort. Neighbors had become foes offering no help. No one, not even God, is found to bring comfort. It is the Lord that has seen to it that there is no relief and no rest. In verse 18, we read that the Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all his peoples, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The people aren't really complaining that God is unjust, but rather they believe here God is righteous, and there is a confessing of their rebelliousness. The city pours out other pain to God and asks him to judge her adversaries as well, which we know God holds Babylon responsible for what they did, even though they were his instrument of judgment. Here we see that the discipline of God was accomplishing its purpose to bring his people to a place of repentance and dependence on him again. You can't help think if you've had children and you see them lying, cheating, stealing, doing whatever thing, and you're continually praying and trying to come up with discipline and ways to change their behavior, and you work hard at that, no greater delight is there when they are actually broken and come to repentant with sorrow over the sinful actions. And that is the work that God is doing. As Jeremiah expresses his incredible pain and grief and sorrow, sorrow he reminds us that those who follow the Lord and do his will which Jeremiah did. He was a faithful prophet who did what God called him to do. But he was not exempt from the pain. It crushed him. You may very well relate to the heart cries of this weeping prophet. There is no one, though, who has ever suffered more pain or intense sorrow and alienation than Jesus Christ, who for over 30 years that the sinless Son of God walked among sinners and he met their needs, only to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified by those he sought to help. And he died completely abandoned and forsaken by God and despised by men. Just like Isaiah 53 tells us, a man of sorrows, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, bearing the sin for all who would come to believe. So as we walk through sorrows in this life, and they do come, what a comfort to know that the Good Shepherd knows all about heartache and pain personally. He truly is a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and we can come boldly before his throne in prayer. Chapter 2 is the second lament, Reasons for Suffering, and it really is the wrath of God in the first five verses that is um, talked about at length. 
This chapter in particular deals directly with the anger of God. It is the most detailed treatment regarding the wrath of God. In the first 10 verses alone, there are 40 descriptions of God's judgment and anger. And though the world we live in denies any concept of a God like this existing, often stating, my God wouldn't ever do that, um, they don't know the truth about God. Yet knowing the truth about this God is what brings you peace in the calamity and in the storm. Suffering is not due to some blind, unlucky force that just happened to come into your life by chance. That would be hopeless. No, suffering is intensely personal in experience. Here it's retributive suffering for offenses done. It is a personal, it is personal and requires that individuals face up to the anger of God for sin. If we don't recognize God's anger with sin, we can be hit with aloneness and grief by simply thinking we are objects of chance. God's anger, I remind you, is never explosive, irrational, or unreasonable like our anger. Rather, it is his firm expression of his displeasure with our wickedness and our sin. His anger never shuts off his compassion to us. God cannot be indifferent when it comes to sin. Mankind certainly has experienced his incredible restraint as they shake their fist at him, as they murder billions of babies. But he will yield to anger when there is a refusal to repent. There will be judgment. And even when he unleashes his anger, the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5, it lasts for a moment. His love remains. His anger passes quickly. Even as God was angry with Judah, his anger was measured and controlled by his love and justice. And the fact that he loves so intently is why he deals with sin. To show his love and his care and to call them back to himself. Suffering, whether it's for discipline in our own life or God just transforming and making us more like his son, is because we are loved and it's because we matter to him. It is personal. It is not random. In chapter 1, great sorrow was expressed about the state of the city. And here in chapter 2, as it's more about the anger of God and specifically what happened in the temple. So we see in these first 10 verses what God did to his temple. And then the prophet cries out in 11 and 12. And then 14 through 19, the prophet rebukes Judah uh, with singing exhortations. So the focal point really is Yahweh. Verse 1 of chapter 2, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel, has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes in fierce anger. He has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the, the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. 
He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. A good reason to teach the fear of the Lord. We see clearly in these verses that their suffering comes from the hand of the Lord. The Lord himself is the reason for this downfall. The glory of Israel was her temple. The Ark of the Covenant is referred to as the footstool in 1 Chronicles 28. It was his footstool because the Lord was enthroned and seated between the cherubim. And the wrath of God was so great here that he even abandoned his footstool in the day of anger. In verse 3, we see the Lord has cut down the strength of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand, his hand of help, from them. And he is burning them like a flame of fire against them. No more palaces, no more fortresses, only sorrow, only sadness. Verses 6 through 10, the destruction of the temple and the public place of worship is described. No more festivals, no more Sabbath, king or priest. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, verse 8 says. This incredible suffering was so personal because it came from the Lord to his people. And the effect of God's messenger, Jeremiah says in verse 11, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is the grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. No one had worked harder than Jeremiah to try to reverse the destruction of this hell-bent rebellion of the society that he lived in and that he preached to. But the worst had happened anyway. And you know what? He never said, I told you so. God's love for this people is seen in him sending the prophet Jeremiah, who expresses grief over all of the hurt that happened to the people and the nation and the temple. Jeremiah certainly did weep with those who weep. He mourned until he was completely worn out and exhausted from all of his weeping. He speaks of the heartbreak of seeing children dying of hunger in the streets and babies dying on their mother's breast because there is no nourishment. He had been the prophet to boldly proclaim truth about the judgment of God to come, and when it came, he too experienced the excruciating pain. The pain he felt was beyond measure. He even laments to the people, who can heal you? You know, their false prophets had told the people everything they wanted to hear. Life's good. No problem. They never talked about their sin. They never talked about their guilt. And I couldn't help but think about how similar that is to how many countless preachers across our land today who write books, who tell everybody how to be happy and healthy and wealthy. There's no mention of sin and judgment and guilt very similar to the false prophets of Jeremiah's day. In verses 15 and 16, it speaks about their enemies who find great joy in their suffering. Their hatred wasn't limited to the Jewish people, but really their hatred was toward the one true God as well. And Jerusalem was supposed to be a channel of spiritual blessing to all the nations. But the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing. And he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. So as I mentioned before, what happened was clearly spelled out verbatim 
in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. If you line up that passage in Deuteronomy 28 to chapter 1 of Lamentations in chapter 2, you will just see exact fulfillment of everything they were told. This is what's going to happen if you do what, you, what they did. If God had proved to be faithful, well, let me say, in the sadness, there really is still comfort here. Because if God had proved to be faithful and true to keep his word by bringing judgment, then he is equally true and dependable with the promise of blessing that comes to all who return. Just as faithful on the other side. They did cry out to him in prayer in verse 18. And this prayer included great weeping, an expression of personal feeling in the midst of starving children, which was the focus of their grief. If you are a parent, who has wept greatly over the plight of your own children, you are certainly not alone in the desperate pleas to the Lord. The Lord wants his people to look to him in their grief for help. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Clearly, this is what Jeremiah was doing. He is urging the people to join him in his lament to God. It was time to pray. Verse 20, Jeremiah lays out his prayer before the Lord. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones born healthy? Should priests and prophets be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? In other words, when will all of this agony and misery come to an end? It seems like you're being inactive, God. Look at the horror that had come and all the misery. How could mothers eat their own children? There was no one who escaped the effect of God's wrath. We see, and there was no one who escaped or survived the day of the Lord's anger. So this second lament ends as the first lament did, with all of this sorrow being the work of God. And although this book affirms that judgment has fallen on the Jewish people because of their defiant rebellion and disobedience to him, it also makes it clear that their punishment has come directly from the Lord. God is the one who brought this misery upon them. <clears throat> the punishment he has inflicted has brought about the desired response from the people. Just like you're thrilled if you disciplined a child and they actually came back sorrow over their sin. <clears throat> so these people had intense sorrow and a contrite heart and broken wills and finally dependent spirits calling out to the Lord. The Lord in his sovereignty rules over every single calamity that comes into our lives. And though it is painful, it is not the end of comfort or hope. In reality, the cause of our pain is the one who brings comfort and grace in the pain. He is the one to bring relief even from what he has brought into our lives. Whether it's because of discipline, because of sin, or whether, as I said, he's just growing us to conform us to be more like Jesus Christ, he is alone is the one to bring relief. I mean, it's a full circle. He brings it, and you have to go back to him for the grace and comfort. Because God is a strong tower, we have him to run to. How often do we ask God, where are you in this situation? Where are you in my pain? And how often, if you've experienced excruciating pain, do you find that he seems to be silent? Silent. And you know you're there, he's there, but he's not answering. And when that is the case, we must do what Jeremiah did that we'll see next week. Where he stopped and said, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. He stops listening 
and reviewing all his sorrows and starts preaching truth about God to his heart and mind. So I encourage you to think accurately about God and his grace and his patience. The Lord will not allow his children to hide their sin or get away with their sin because he's a merciful God. He gives multiple opportunities to turn back to him in repentance, but he will not keep us from reaping a harvest if it's a sinful harvest we're planting. Because he loves his own, he will deal with us regarding our sinful behavior. If he has convicted you again and again and again of the same sin you continue to do, you need to think about this chapter. You need to think about the verse about remembering and considering the future. Romans 8.28 fits in here so beautifully because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him. The good, the bad, the ugly, the horrific, the wonderful, it's all designed by him, allowed by him, has a purpose of what he's doing in our lives. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Let's pray. Father, you've included this in your word. And really, when we're in heartache and in despair, I thank you that we have men like Jeremiah to look to and to read that we know we're not the first person in anguish and heartache, that many have gone before us and that you have faithfully brought them through the hardest of times. Lord, I thank you that you are the sovereign God of the universe and that nothing comes into our lives because of bad luck, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, because it was random. We know better. We know that in your sovereign plan, you allow things that we are never going to understand till we get to glory. But I pray that you will help us to have a walk of faith and to trust you in the worst of the storm and to believe that you are good and wise and faithful and kind even when you despise our sinful behavior. I pray that we would walk in obedience to you, Lord, and please you and, and trust you as you grow us into the image of you. In Jesus' name, amen.